possesses. Oh, Bertie, I'm sorry.
Welcome to the Weekly Review. This is Roman. Thank you so much for tuning in. Today, it is Friday, October 13th. Thank you so much for listening. You're listening to Mutiny Radio. Opened up the show with a song. I'm going to sit down and make myself more comfortable. We don't have a video camera here in the radio station, so you can't exactly see what I'm doing. You can only hear what I'm doing. And right now, I'm wearing a mask. So thank you, Dean, for providing a mask. There's been... Massive fires in Northern California, also in Southern California, and the smoke has also kind of come this way. So the the ear the air warning for the Bay Area has been pretty intense. So they are encouraging folks to keep windows closed and to wear masks if you're going outside. Today the alert was a little bit more moderate here in San Francisco than yesterday, but they're still encouraging folks to take precautions. Uh, last I heard, 13 folks had died up in uh, Northern California, over in Santa Rosa area, and thousands of buildings were destroyed. So I'll be providing some information for folks. Um, thankfully, a lot of people have been providing a lot of helpful information, and we're seeing that, as per usual, in times of disasters, it's really the people kind of providing the information and helping each other and passing along information that way. So stay tuned, so we'll be providing more info for folks that way as well. Started the show a little bit earlier than anticipated. Uh, we'll be playing some more music before we get fully started with the show. Just wanted to not provide too much silence here on the air while we got everything settled. So I did want to thank Larry Bob for suggesting that first song, which I hadn't heard before. At least if I had, I, I didn't know I'd heard it. And it's just uh, really great uplifting song so i wanted to say some gratitude for that it's called something inside you so strong by lobby uh Cifre. and just it's really good to have some positive music with <sighs> inspirational lyrics and that's always been the case i think especially now when we're coming against 
so many difficult situations. We've got the climate, we've got humans, and I do feel like the problems with the climate are due to humans. So it seems from almost every angle, there are obstacles that we're coming up against. So any messages of solidarity and of optimism and I, I don't necessarily like optimism when it's not real. Like, I don't think, oh, let's just pretend the bad things aren't happening. I don't think that's helpful. I think that's even worse. I do feel like the folks who provide the optimism with the <sighs> footing behind it, with the idea that, oh, we're all in this together for real. And a lot of what we're struggling against, we've been struggling against for centuries. So in a way, a lot of these things are nothing new. It might seem new to some folks, but... For a lot of folks, people in positions of power have not been here to help us. They've been here to hurt us. And now it's much more overt, and that's what we're seeing. So <laughs> with that lovely introduction, I'm going to play another song that was recommended. And then <laughs> then we'll get into the show. So this was another song I hadn't heard before. Uh, it's called Rise Up by a band called Parachute Club. So uh, please enjoy.
Welcome back. I hadn't heard that song before, so thank you to Jillian for recommending that one. If you check out the video, it's very 80s. People are just dancing and having a good time. And perhaps we can get back to that place somehow. So we'll be going over a lot of news stories today. Also, the phone lines are open, so if folks would like to call in, talk about anything that's on your mind, share information, please do so. Our phone number is 415-550-0511. As per usual, we have stories about police doing terrible things, which is a recurring theme on the show and in life. So we'll be talking a bit about that, as well as the, the police in Charlottesville. And one of the people who was standing up against them was arrested um, the night before um, a big election. So there's just a lot of these recurring themes. And we'll also be talking about a lot of other issues that are happening right now. So, yes, please do call in 415-550-0511. Here's some information I wanted to share. So if you're in the Bay Area, some emergency communication um, you can get is if you text your zip code to 888-777. Again, that's texting your zip code to 888-777. And you can get emergency communications regarding the potential uh, fire threats in your area, and you can get messages in English or Spanish. So again, that's 888-777. You can get information texted to you that way. So I wanted to provide folks that information. Also some more information for folks who are looking to get some resources. If you are displaced or know anyone who is displaced, um, there's a list of organizations that are offering the following uh, that's for free for evacuees, uh, for free food and water. Amy's drive, uh, Amy's drive through in Roanoke Park is offering free meals to those evacuated. And uh, if, you, if you'd like to pay for an evacuee's meal, 100% of that money will be donated to help in the aid effort. And that was posted on October 10th, so that was a few days ago. Uh, Napolito, and that's they're offering free burritos from 11 to 3, and this was also on October 10th. Uh, McGuire's is offering free food. Mystic Theater McNear's uh, serving breakfast from 9 to 11, and this was on October 10th as well. And they're serving lunch, soup, and sandwiches from 12 to 3, and dinner from 5 to 8, and they can deliver or make meals to go, and you can contact them directly at 707-765-2121. Again, it's 707 707- Seven six five twenty one twenty one, the Sauced Barbecue Restaurant, and uh, it's, um, at least on October tenth, I'm assuming this is still continuing. Uh, they were serving free food from nine to four and offering a place to rest and view TV. The Sweet Zone were offering f- uh, free gelato. Queen Ah Restaurant were offering lunch. Uh, Lagunitas Tap Room were giving away free water, so you can bring containers and they will fill them. The Drawing Board was offering free delivery. And they also provide, and then, okay, so the next list is going to be uh, places where folks can get free Wi-Fi or computers or access to computers. Um, Comcast, ugh, who would think I'd say something positive about them on this show? But sure enough, they have um, removed restrictions and opened their Wi-Fi hotspots to all to use through Friday. So that's through today. Hopefully they'll continue. Maybe we should all apply pressure on them to kind of have this be an ongoing thing since they're a big corporation. You can log in as guests. So hopefully that's still up and running. And if not, I would encourage folks to contact Comcast. I know they're deeply problematic, but to continue to allow folks to have free access to Wi-Fi. Next is Copperfield's Books in Petaluma. They're allowing free Wi-Fi. They allow dogs, water. Uh, it allows dogs, and they say, and they say it's water, stickers, and crayons for children. Okay, great. 
Next is Mystic Theater and McNears and the Roaring Donkey. And this is also from October 10th, um, offering laptops for fire victims to use if they need to get a hold of financial institutions or family. You can ask for Sierra Bradley. The Roaring Donkey also has laptops set up and Wi-Fi and charges for people as needed. Next is free health and wellness. And also, I'm just going to make a note. Imagine if uh, this was like an ongoing thing all the time. If everyone had access to Wi-Fi and food and water and shelter, perhaps this could happen even when there's not disasters. Could we do that? Hmm. Putting that question out there for the masses. Ah, okay. So health and wellness. Uh, the Petaluma Swim Center are offering showers from, uh, let's see, 8.30 to 10.30 a.m. and 3 to 5.30 p.m. And this was also on the 10th. So hopefully this is still going on. Just wanting to let folks know this was from a few days ago. And hopefully they are still continuing to allow these services for people. They're also, um, and also perhaps, you know, this idea that they are doing it and other places can also do that who are able to. And they're also offering soap, shampoo, and towels. Next is a Synergy Health Club. And they're offering free showers plus towels to those who need it, and also a place to relax with couches and a TV. Next, free clothing and entertainment. Adventure Recreation at 2200 Petaluma Boulevard North will be open until 6 p.m. for kids to play out of the smoke. Free for fire victims. Proceeds from others will be donated to relief efforts. Next is the Petaluma Bowling Alley, offering a free space to hang out and play games. Next is Saxe's Joint. And that's at 317 Petaluma Boulevard South, collecting... They put gender into this. Uh, why? They're talking about offering clothes. I'm going like to read this in my mind before I announce it to people. They're, they're collecting clothes. They're collecting clothes, okay? And next is... And that's, again, that's Saxe's joint. I don't know why they had to be specific about the, the genders of the people who wear clothes. I don't get it. Next, thank you for collecting clothes. Okay. Next is California Academy of Sciences, and it's free, a safe place for families during the day. Next is Ethical Clothing at 122 Kentucky Street, and their number is 707-769-8564, and they're open on Tuesday. And the middle room of the store is Free Clothing Boutique for those in need. For non-evacuees, they will also sell newly donated items for $25 a piece and donate the money to those in need. Next is a place called Yoga Hell. Not Yoga Hall, but Yoga Hell. That's their name. And at Yoga Hell, uh, they're having free yoga classes plus an easy drop-off donation site for locals. Next, really important, pets and animal boarding. The Petaluma Animal Shelter um, as the Snuggle Shuttle at Petaluma Community Center at Luchesi. <laughs> mispronouncing this i'm sure lucchesi park and their number is 707-778-7387 they are offering pet food water boarding and lost and found pet information again this is the petaluma animal shelter and the number is 707-778-7387 next strong's second chance ranch they're offering to home horses and they can you can message them on facebook Next, Chancier Ranch, uh, Bodega Bay is offering free beds and campsite, kids and pet friendly. And their number is 
875-2721. And again, with all these places, if you're able to contact them, um, the information I'm reading was posted a few days ago. So some of this might not still be current, but please do get a hold of them if you're able just to, to check in if that's a place you would like to go or need to go. And next is the Sonoma Humane Society at 5345 Highway 12 West in Santa Rosa. And they're taking in animals for boarding, lost and found animals, no cost vet treatment for burn victims, owned or stray animals affected by fires. And they're open from eight to five daily. Next is unleashed dog training for boarding. If you need a place to hang, call at 707-763-9882. Next is the Marin Humane Society offering free boarding. And then miscellaneous animal issues. Anyone uh, encountering animal-related issues can call 707-565-4406. Again, that's 707-565-4406. This number will be available 24-7 until further notice. Donations can also be made through this line. Please be prepared to share information about the number of animals, type of animals, address, and location for the animals, and any information about the families associated with the animals, if known. And then all, they also added the last thing here is Better Homes and Gardens in Sebastopol will give you a cup of coffee and Wi-Fi, and you can charge your phone if you need that. And that's at 186 Main Street at Sebastopol. So again, um, lots of information here, and I'm going to share it again right now on the Weekly Review web webpage. So if any of these um, strike your interest, um, you can now check out, if you go to facebook.com slash weeklyrev, and that's W-E-E-K-L-Y-R-E-V. Uh, we've just posted all the information I just read right there. And thank you to Katie Stryker for sharing this information in the first place. And thanks for everyone for doing what we can to, to you know, share this and to provide spaces for people to go. That's really, really crucial. Not just, not just in times of emergencies, but all the time. We really need a place, you know, we need places for everyone to get access to things that they need, not just not just during emergency situations. And perhaps we can do that all the time. And someone else posted a really great post about, you know, it's time for disaster communism, where it's really like, how can we make this happen all the time instead of just for, for victims and folks who are going through this right now? What can we do on a regular basis where everyone can get their needs met? And again, also, why is it only when things get really bad that people sometimes show up? Why aren't people showing up all the time? And there's a lot of ways to answer that, of course. there's Everyone's experiencing and has experienced multiple traumas, and how do we just even go through the day-to-day, and how do we show up for ourselves and each other? And there's a lot of things, you know, one could say stacked against us as far as... I got into a, an argument earlier today, or maybe it was yesterday. It wasn't today. It was online. Someone was praising capitalism. I don't know why. I don't know if they're in denial or what, or they're misinformed, or perhaps... They are just not aware of the millions, actually billions around the world when you're thinking about it, of people who have been, uh, whose lives have been <laughs> seriously affected negatively by capitalism and people who've lost their lives due to this <sighs> ideology and this practice. Anyway, I, I just kind of had to be like, what? They were calling it a success. And I was wondering for whom. I don't, because I, no one that I know personally or and say it's a success. That's not true. I'm sure there are some folks I, I know who would argue for it, and I will definitely, for a very long time, as long as I can, I will argue against it because what we're living in right now is unjust, and it's 
unjust to the majority of the population. And when something's not working for the majority of the population, it's time to change it. Speaking of changing things, how about that for a segue? Oh, there's a lot of, by the way, trigger warning. I usually say that at some point during the show. This is a news and current events podcast. So we're talking about what's happening and a lot of it's triggering, a lot of it's deeply disturbing and distressing. And the, one of the main themes of this show has been people in positions of power making things worse for the rest of us. That's a recurring theme, whether it's the quote-unquote justice system, whether it's law enforcement, whether it's folks in government. Time and time again, we see a lot of folks who, who, whose actions end up hurting people. That seems to be the recurring theme. And so we'll go over some of these stories today. Also, once again, if you would like to call in, we do accept calls. So please do call in. We're at 415-550-0511. If you want to stop by, we're on the corner of 21st and Florida in the mission. We like talking with people. I love having guests on the show. So, you know, the more the merrier, the more points of view we have, the better, the better it gets. Oh, people in positions of power doing things that are not good. How about Governor Brown? Now, of all the governors in the United States, there's a lot that are super problematic that make me very angry. Um, folks who have been governors in the past, our current VP, gross. Uh, we talk about Sam Brownback from Kansas, super gross. Scott Walker, one of my all-time least favorites from Wisconsin. Jan Brewer from Arizona, ugh. I'm sure I'm leaving out a lot. Paula Page in Maine, gross. Uh, a lot of them, a lot of them are really uh, just, yeah. How, ugh. I mean, if, if government... You know, I guess governing to them means hurting a lot of people, and that's gross. Now, here in California, maybe, I guess there's a low bar for governors is what I'm saying. So we have Jerry Brown, and while he's not actively, well, I'm, I'm going to stop myself here and just read this article. And this comes from the Mercury News. So for the wine country fires, Governor Brown vetoed a 2016 bill aimed at Powerline and wildfire safety. So here's someone who had the ability to keep people safe or at least protect people a little bit and decided not to. And folks can argue that when you're in a position of power, you sometimes you make deals with like either, either the energy companies or certain other people in power, and then you end up not looking out for the well-being, A, of the planet, and B, the residents of the planet. So this was written by uh, Matthias... Gaffney and Emily DeRoy, and this was published on October 11th, and it was, it was updated on October 12th, and again, you can find this at the Mercury News website. Um, a year ago, a bipartisan bill aimed at reducing the risk of wildfires from overhead electrical lines went to Governor Jerry Brown's desk. The author of the measure, passed unanimously by both houses of the legislature, now says the governor missed out on a chance to tackle one of his state's long-standing vulnerabilities, massive wildfires endangering residential communities. But the governor's office and the California Public Utilities Commission say the bill duplicated efforts already underway among the CPUC, Cal Fire, and utilities like PG&E. Now, as a series of deadly fires rages in wine country, serious questions are once again being asked about the safety of overhead electrical wires in a state prone to drought and fierce winds. On Wednesday, Cal Fire said that the investigators have started looking into whether toppled power wires and exploding transformers Sunday night may have ignited the simultaneous string of blazes. The acknowledgement followed publication 
of a review by the Bay Area News Group of Sonoma County Firefighters Radio Transmissions in the fire's infancy that found that there were numerous downed and arcing wires. In the first 90 minutes Sunday night, firefighters were sent to 10 different spots where problems had been reported with the area's electrical infrastructure. The crews reported seeing sparkling... Excuse me. They weren't sparkling. They were sparking. (sighs) Seeing sparking lines and transformers. During that same time period... Radio transmissions indicate 28 blazes, both vegetation and structure fires, breaking out, mostly in Sonoma County. Firefighters were sent to eight fallen tree calls, with many reports of blocked roadways. Those were witnessed, Cal Fire spokeswoman Lynn Talmakoff said Wednesday, regarding the, the blown transformers and downed wires. However, you have to go and look to see if it was a cause of the fire or as a result of the fire. The state's fire agency has said it has ruled out lightning, but said the investigation continues for an official cause of the blazes, which, as of late Wednesday, had killed 23 people. So I have to correct myself from the initial number I stated earlier. So it's 23, as of late Wednesday, has killed 23 people and destroyed... And destroyed more than 3,500 structures in Sonoma, Napa, and other Northern California counties. PG&E acknowledges there are troubles with, this, with its equipment Sunday night, but says blaming the utility's electrical system for the fires at this point would be highly speculative. It has labeled the conditions in the first hours of the fires a historic wind event. But meteorologist Jan Null, owner of Golden Gate Weather Services in Saratoga, said that Sunday night's winds, while strong, were not hurricane force and had been surpassed in previous storms. Atlas Peak had gusts of 32 miles per hour at 9 p.m. on Sunday night, Null said. By comparison, the peak had gusts of 66 miles per hour in last February. SB 1463 had been introduced in last year's legislative session by Senator John Morlock, Republican from Costa Mesa. The bill would have required the state to identify the places most at risk for wildfires and would have required the CPUC to beef up plans to prevent fires sparked by power lines, including moving lines underground if necessary. But Brown said the bill was unnecessary. Since May of last year, the commission and CAL FIRE have been doing just that, the, just that through the existing proceeding on fire threat maps and fire safety regulations, he said in his veto message. This deliberative process should continue, and the issues this bill seeks to address should be raised in that forum. But the senator isn't buying it. Up until my bill, those guys were doing nothing, Morlock said on Wednesday. I think you got some false information. He said his bill would have sped up what, has, what had become a cumbersome process and given local communities more of a voice by clarifying how fire risk is defined. Had the governor signed his bill into law, he added, I think it would have changed things. I think it would have given Cal Fire a whole different set of priorities. Brown's sister Kathleen, he pointed out, served on the board of the energy services holding company Sempra. Power and utility companies, Morlock said, didn't want to spend the money, making things safer by moving lines underground. That's so outrageous it doesn't merit a response, Evan Westrup, a spokesman for the governor's office, said of the notion that the government didn't sign the bill to somehow help out Sempra. It's unfortunate this particular individual is trying to score political points by peddling inaccurate, self-serving claims at a time like this. CPUC spokeswoman Terry Prosper said the, years of, said the years-long CPUC and CAL FIRE effort has already reached key goals. 
Phase 1 was completed in 2015, and Phase 2 is nearly done as well, which will implement new fire safety regulations in high-priority areas of the state. PG&E has paid millions of dollars in fines and settlements over the years for its failure to properly maintain vegetation clearance around its electrical lines when it led to massive fires. In April, the State Public Utilities Commission fined PG&E $8.3 million for failing to maintain a power line that sparked the Butte Fire in Amador County in September 2015. That fire burned for 22 days, killing two people, destroying 549 homes, and charring 70,868 acres. In the months before this week's deadly conflagra- conflagrations, PG&E has been active in Sonoma County. Just last month, responding to what it called California's tree morality crisis caused by the five-year drought, PG&E began flying helicopters over Sonoma County to identify dead trees that could pose a wildfire or other public safety risk, according to a September 20th news release by the utility. The utility said that that statement that the utility said in that statement that it patrols and inspects its overhead lines annually. Since the drought and spike in tree deaths, the energy company said it's now inspecting trees twice a year. Last year, PG&E conducted secondary checks on 68,000 miles of electrical lines. Almost 11,000 of those inspections are done by helicopter, the utility said. The September helicopter inspections flew directly over Santa Rosa and other heavily impacted fire zones, according to the release. In March, PG&E launched a program to inspect Sonoma County's 90,000 wooden power poles. It was expected to last through early next year, according to a March 13th news release. The utility started along Highway 101 in Santa Rosa, in the heart of what would be torched months later. And uh, staff writers Paul Rogers, Lisa M. Krieger, and George Avalos contributed to this report. And again, you can find this at the Mercury News. And I will also share this right now to the Weekly Review webpage, and that way you can also read it and share it with folks if you would like. So that is a downer, and it's also really important just to, to check in with who, you know, who's setting things up, who's taking the safety precautions, because it's, it's really important to see what's happening behind the scenes. With that, I think we're going to play another song just to take a bit of a break here, and then we'll be back with some more information, more stories, and more ways that folks can take action. So a while ago, I did post that I was looking for recommendations of songs that folks felt were uplifting and also said something. So we're going to continue on with that one. And I think a lot of folks will know this next song I'm going to play. There's another Bay Area band. And so happy to happy to share them. They, you know, they're it's good to support local bands, even those who haven't been uh, around for a bit. So stay tuned and we'll be back in a little bit.
Rangers Columbia Thompson reality TV show. I do not think that it was made for those jackasses at the Fox News Network. I suspect that it was made for workers, that it was made for students, that it was made for the good people of Ohio and punk fucking rock fans. That's what I suspect it was made for. I'm not in agreement. So from this day forth, on November 2nd, the people of Ohio have a very important job to do. We need to get that motherfucker out of office. Help me. The work, though, that does not end there. Because on November 3rd, issues like human rights, peace, workers' rights, women's rights, the economy, the growing gulf between rich and poor, immigrant rights, none of those go away. And that's when it's your job. That's when democracy is in action. That's when you have to be in the streets and stand up in your place of work, stand up in your school, stand up in your community, stand up in your country, and you stand up and you fight for your rights. That's how change happens in this country. And that's why this land was made for you and me. So what we're going to do now is we're going to sing in one of the verses that Woody Guthrie wrote for this song that you did not learn in the third grade. They were afraid if they taught you this one in your middle school that one day you might end up at an anti-flag concert. In the squares of the city, in the shadow of the steeple, near the relief office, I see my people, and some are hungry, and some are wondering if this land's still made for you and me. Welcome back to the Weekly Review. That was Anti-Flag and Tom Morello with their cover of This Land is Your Land. Now this was from 2007. So this is 10 years ago. And in the video, in the back, they have a giant sign that has the W with a line through it. So everything that they're talking about is <laughs> still happening. So... Just a reminder that this has been an uphill battle for a, a long time, and it's always, I don't know why I find it reassuring, just to know that folks have been fighting for a long time, but it, it's, it's like a lot of this is nothing new. And remembering that folks have been fighting this for this for a really a long time, and it's not like things just got bad all of a sudden in 2016 or with this election. The attacks have become more overt, certainly, but <sighs> it's not like things... Uh, Things were safer for people a while ago. Now it's, it seems that more people are being attacked. I was talking about this yesterday. The idea that now maybe more people are being engaged because they're being attacked too when before parts of the population were and now even more folks are. And it, sometimes it seems that people don't get involved until it affects them directly or affects their friends or families directly. 
and what would this world be like if folks were to to step up regardless of who's being attacked you know the the iww the saying an injury to one is an injury to all so perhaps we can think about that we have another theme of the show <laughs> i've mentioned before and it's it should be like law enforcement acting poorly and that's their job though so I've got a few stories about them that I'm going to read about. The The last one I'll get to is, has, it's a longer piece, and it has to do with Charlottesville. I mentioned this earlier. And we'll start off here first with local local news, the Oakland police. And this article is from the East Bay Express, and this came out. <sighs> I'm going to take a, a deep breath. And this was written by... Darwin Bond Graham, and this came out on October 11th. Oakland police chief made false statements about an ice raid. Imagine that. A police, the police are lying. I hope you can detect my sarcasm here. That's one thing that they do. Ann Kirkpatrick said Oakland police had assisted in a federal human trafficking investigation, but the only charges filed so far are civil immigration violations. Following a controversial August 16th raid of a West Oakland home by Immigration and Customs Enforcement agents, Oakland Police Chief Ann Kirkpatrick said repeatedly that the operation was part of a criminal human trafficking investigation. She also asserted that OPD did not violate Oakland's sanctuary city policy by assisting ICE by providing several patrol officers to block off the street during the raid because it was a criminal, not civil immigration matter. But according to evidence presented by Oakland Privacy Advisory Commission Chair Brian Hofer at the commission's meeting last week, the raid hasn't resulted in a single criminal prosecution. Rather, the only person arrested, Santos de Leon, is facing, crim- is, is facing civil immigration charges and could be deported. And while ICE maintains that there is an ongoing criminal investigation that could possibly result in charges being filed at a later date, Agency officials have repeatedly declined requests for more information. Immigration advocates are worried that the West Oakland raid could be an example of a new and troubling trend. ICE has recently begun to classify the act of providing shelter and other assistance to unaccompanied minors who recently immigrated to the United States as human trafficking and is charging adults, often close family members, with the crime. Hofer alleged that by providing assistance to ICE for the raid, OPD violated Oakland's sanctuary city policies. He said Kirkpatrick made false statements on several occasions, including in emails to city council members, statements at a town hall meeting, and through several OPD press releases about the raid. The chief repeatedly supplied false information, said Hofer at last week's meeting. He pointed to several statements made by OPD and the chief about the raid that he said he could find no evidence to support. The statements included a social media posting from OPD asserting that the arrest was related to sex trafficking. A later in-person statement by the chief said that the man who was arrested had been charged with a crime and that no one is being deported. The chief also said publicly that victims were rescued by ICE and received services. But there is no evidence to back up those statements. At a community meeting in North Oakland last week, Kirkpatrick declined to answer questions from the Express about Hofer's allegations or what sort of information ICE provided to OPD before officers assisted in the raid. Kirkpatrick also declined a request from the Privacy Commission to attend its meeting and answer questions about the raid, Hofer said. Laura Polstein, an attorney with Centro Legal de la Raza, told members of the Privacy Commission that her organization's staff members responded to the raid and documented what happened. The arrest was a civil immigration violation only, she said. I personally met with the individual who was arrested and confirmed that. 
The recent Oakland raid occurred early in the morning of August 16th when about 25 ICE agents who work for the Homeland Security Investigations, HSI, unit served a warrant at a home on the 700 block of 27th Street. At least two Oakland police officers assisted in the operation by blocking vehicle traffic on 27th Street. ICE agents arrested one person, DeLeon, and took another person, a younger relative of DeLeon, from the house. According to sources close to the family, the younger relative was taken by law enforcement to the Alameda County Family Justice Center, provided with unspecified quote-unquote services, and then released. Concerned neighbors documented the event, as did independent journalist David Morse, who writes under the byline, David Id, Dave Id. Their questions prompted OPD to release a statement on social media at 12.01 p.m. on August 16th, stating that ICE was serving a quote-unquote federal criminal search warrant in connection with human sex trafficking of juveniles in our city. OPD statement drew TV news crews to the home while ICE agents were still on the scene, and multiple media outlets reported that the individual being arrested was part of a sex trafficking investigation involving minors. A few hours after issuing its social media post, OPD deleted it and issued a second statement without alleging sex trafficking. Hofer called OPD's initial statement about sex trafficking of juveniles a really salacious allegation that has damaged the reputation of everyone present that day. Later, during a September 6th town hall meeting hosted by Councilmember Abel Guillen, Kirkpatrick was questioned by members of the public about whether OPD's assistance during the raid violated Oakland's sanctuary city policy, which bars the city from helping to reinforce federal civil immigration law. The federal partners do not have to tell us when they're coming into our jurisdiction. It's a courtesy, Kirkpatrick responded. But they said they were coming to Oakland to execute an arrest warrant pertaining to probable cause for human trafficking. And I'm going to just interrupt for a second and just say that, meanwhile, the Oakland police themselves uh, were involved with some... (sighs) I'm going to calm down here. They themselves were, there was an underage person that they were involved with uh, sexually and the Celeste Guap case. And they, so far, I don't know if the article will get to this or not, but it's just, it's so fascinating when the, the folks who are out there to quote unquote save people, are they themselves, the, the institution itself has been involved in either trafficking or violating people. Okay, moving along, just felt the need to, to, to make that statement. All right. So she explained that the base that based on this notification, she chose to provide OPD officers to block off the streets to help ICE con- conduct the search and arrest. She then said that only one person has been charged with a crime, and there is not a deportation matter in this case. But Kirkpatrick's statement is contradicted by ICE documents obtained by the Privacy Commission. ICE officials filed an I-213, the form that initiates a civil de- deportation case against Dillion on August 16th, the day they arrested him. The form also contains contradictory and apparently erroneous information. For example, it states that DeLeon was arrested on August 10th, six days before the raid, for the crime of human slavery or trafficking. However, there is no record of his arrest by any Bay Area police agency or ICE on that date. The ICE agent who prepared the I-213 also wrote that there is no evidence yet that DeLeon was a perpetrator, conspirator, or accomplice to the alleged crimes described on the search warrant or complaint. In other words, DeLeon was arrested purely on grounds that he is undocumented and now faces deportation. Members of the Privacy Commission asked last week what sort of due diligence Kirkpatrick had conducted before providing ICE with assistance. Oakland Police Captain Bobby Hookfin told the commissioners that only the chief 
that only the chief had that information and he was unaware if ICE ever supplied a warrant or other documents that would have spelled out criminal allegations in detail. Some immigration rights activists are worried that ICE has recently redefined the crime of human trafficking to include assistance, like housing and employment, that adults provide to juveniles who come to the United States without their parents. In many cases, the adults being investigated and charged are close relatives of the minors who are supposedly being trafficked. It's unclear if that's what happened in this case, but on August 10th, more than 100 legal assistance and immigrants' rights organizations sent a letter to the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, Acting Secretary Elaine Duke, calling for an end to the surge initiative under the Trump administration that has resulted in the targeting of families harboring immigrant youth. This initiative, like other actions recently reported targeting families and youth, will further devastate communities across the United States where fear of immigration enforcement has already reduced engagement with local police and the reporting of crimes, including domestic violence and sexual assault, the letter stated. Others worry that the recent Oakland raid has further blurred the line between criminal and civil enforcement actions by federal immigration agents. The conflation of ICE's enforcement actions has also drawn criticism across California and is the reason why cities like Oakland and Santa Cruz have decided to end cooperation between their police departments and the federal agency. In February, then Santa Cruz police chief Kevin Vogel accused ICE of using gang raids as cover to enlist Santa Cruz police officers in immigration enforcement and said his agency would no longer collaborate with ICE. We can't, co- we can't cooperate with a law enforcement agency we cannot trust, Vogel said at the time. Hofer said there is enough inaccuracies between the available facts and what Kirkpatrick has asserted that he is considering filing an internal affairs complaint against the chief for untruthfulness. Wow. <sighs> so, that is what is happening now locally with uh, law enforcement and police. And again these folks are not really helping anyone much at all. They're really causing more harm than good. And in a way it's like the the idea that like law enforcement comes in to quote unquote protect, serve and protect and they end up causing harm. And that's just pretty obscene really when you think about it. Okay. So folks can check out that article at the East Bay Express and it's also been posted on the weekly review webpage. So you can check it out and read it there as well. Next up, we're continuing on with this theme. There'll be at least another story after this about the police, but that's where we're going with this. And that's, uh, I mean, the thing is to really talk about the, the structural and the systemic problems of what, what the problems of this country and what has been around for a long time. And that is the, the law enforcement and who gets to define what the law is, who is punished for the law. Why are there war criminals who are not in jail and people who are in jail because they can't afford bail or people who are in jail because they happen to smoke pot? Why is that? Why are there millions of people incarcerated while there are folks currently in the white house who are, who have attacked people? Why is that? So, we have to think about the the systems that are in place and the people who enforce these systems and that's law enforcement. You don't have to, it's a job. That's the thing. You don't have to have this as a job. It's not like someone was born as a police officer. You could very well say, no, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to contribute in this way. So again, it's not about the individual who's doing it, although they should be held responsible and accountable. It's the fact that the system works in that folks are rewarded for helping the state. And if people commit state violence, oftentimes they're not held accountable and they get away with it. 
And in doing so, they also end up hurting and harming a lot of people. More people I know than not are afraid of police and do not do not like police. So it's like almost like they cause the they almost have the exact opposite uh, meaning of what they're supposed to do. And I get that not everyone's like that. However, a lot of people are, and I think more and more people are waking up to recognize that the folks who are paid to protect us don't really protect us and end up hurting us a lot. So for a while, The Guardian um, had a project called Accounted, and that was recording uh, murders by police. And they did this in 2015 and 2016. They didn't, they didn't do it for 2017. They didn't start for 2017. And a lot of us were like, oh my gosh, it's only going to get worse under this administration. Hello. And there's other, you know, there's other uh, p- people, organizations who are you know, keeping track as well. But that was like when I was definitely going through um, on a regular basis and they, they compiled the data. They did, you know, ethnicity, age, gender. Um, they had folks contribute as much information as possible. It was really a very like kind of civilian run organization or project where folks could contribute information because the state doesn't keep track of the people that they kill because that would just be too much work. <sighs> so they decided not to do it for 2017. And there were fewer reported in 2016 than 2015 of police killings. It was still over a thousand. This was just in the U.S. and these are just also what we know about. Because of course, there's plenty of things that happen that there might not be witnesses, there might not be recordings, and unfortunately, when someone's murdered, they don't have a chance to tell their side of the story. So we're getting very biased information. So this comes from the Guardian, and apparently, U.S. police killings undercounted by half study using guardian data finds so even with this over a thousand people a year that's uh, a conservative estimate that's not even accurate so let's read this and find out and um hamilius larty in new york wrote this article and this came out on wednesday october 11th and that's uh j-a-m-i-l-e-s i apologize if i'm mispronouncing that name okay Harvard study finds over half of deaths wrongly classified in latest example of databases greatly undercounting police killings. Over half of all police killings in 2015 were wrongly classified as not having been the result of interactions with officers, a new Harvard study based on Guardian data has found. The finding is just the latest to show government databases seriously undercounting the number of people killed by police. Right now, the data quality is bad and unacceptable, said lead researcher Justin Feldman. To effectively address the problem of law enforcement-related deaths, the public needs better data about who is being killed, where, and under what circumstances. Feldman used data from The Guardian's 2015 investigation into police killings, the counted, and compared it with data from the National Vital Statistics System, NVSS. That data set, which is kept by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, CDC, was found to have misclassified 55.2% of all police killings, with the errors occurring disproportionately in low-income jurisdictions. As with any public health outcome or exposure, the only way to understand the magnitude of the problem and whether it is getting better or worse requires that data be uniformly, validly, and reliably obtained throughout the U.S., said Nancy Krieger, professor of social epidemiology excuse me, epidemiology at Harvard's Chan School of Public Health and senior author of the study. Our results show our country is failing, is falling short of accurately monitoring deaths due to law enforcement and work is needed to remedy this problem. NVSS data has been collected since the late 1800s, wow, and today is responsible for, among other things, aggregating all annual U.S. deaths. 
1949, the report added a category to capture legal intervention as a cause of death along with classifications like cancer, heart disease, and accidents. Typically, these determinations are made by local medical examiners and coroners reported on death certificates and submitted to the CDC. To assess how accurately the classification was being used, the team took the 1,146 police-rated deaths recorded by the county in 2015, removed 60 cases that did not fit the criteria of the CDC's legal intervention category, and requested death certificate data for the remaining 1,086 individuals. They found that a majority, 599 deaths, were classified as resulting from something other than legal intervention, principally assault. Researchers found... The accuracy varied wildly by state, with just 17.6% misclassification in Washington, but a startling 100% in Oklahoma. <sighs> Oklahoma had more than 30 people <sighs> were killed by police there in 2015, and none of them were counted on death certificates, Feldman said. According to the report, there are 36 cases of legal intervention captured in the NVSS, which were not included in the counted. We hope that this paper is a call to action to improve public health reporting, whether that's following a method like The Guardian did by integrating media sources better or by changing the policy around requiring clinicians, medical examiners, and coroners to report these deaths, Feldman said. Feldman also noted, noted that this problem was law enforcement specific. Evidence suggests that the accuracy of morality of, excuse me, mortality, there's not really much morality here, the accuracy of mortality classification for homicide an outcome similar to law enforcement-related mortality is very high, the report reads. One 20, 2014 study cited puts the figure at 99%. In 2015, The Guardian launched The Counted, an interactive crowdsourced database attempting to track police killings throughout the U.S. The project was intended to help remedy the lack of reliable data on police killings, a lack that became especially visible after the 2014 unrest in Ferguson put policing in the national spotlight. Other federal databases, including the Bureau of Justice's Statistics, BJS, arrest-related death count, and the FBI's supplementary homicide reports were similarly criticized for severely undercounting police-rated deaths. Both programs have been dramatically reworked since the counted and similar media open-source databases forced officials such as the former FBI director James Comey to admit that newspapers had more accurate data than the government on police violence. Wow. Okay. So, uh, that's my, that's my, that's all I can say about that. And again, this article is from The Guardian and it came out on October 11th if you'd like to read it. Time for another music break. I'm going to drink some water, get my voice back, and we'll be back after that. Sure as the 
and welcome back to the weekly review. This is Roman. It's Friday. We've got the third story about the police doing things that are not kind, and that's me being very nice about. That's I'm not being as mean with my language as I could be, or maybe even as direct with my language as I could be, but here we go. This is the third third story about them. The first being the the police lying and working with ICE agents in Oakland. The second one being that police deaths were underreported as much as 100% in Oklahoma. And then finally here we have a story from Charlottesville, and this comes from The Intercept, and the name of the article is White Knights. Before Charlottesville was in the spotlight, police arrested their most prominent critic in the middle of the night. And this is a bit of a long one, so get comfortable, make yourself some tea, uh, listen in. This was written by Alex Emmons, and it came out yesterday, October 12th. Jeff Fogel woke to the sound of someone furiously banging on his door. He quickly threw on a t-shirt and pajama bottoms while the banging continued, and stole a glance at his alarm clock before running downstairs. It was 12.30 a.m. in Charlottesville, Virginia. When Fogel opened the door, he couldn't believe what he saw. He was face-to-face with five police officers on his front porch, and behind them, five police cars lit up the neighboring houses, red with blue, red and blue with their flashing lights. As one of the city's leading defense attorneys, Fogel was on a first-name basis with a lot of Charlottesville's top cops, but he was confused about why they would seek him out so late. As a joke, Fogel put out his hands, wrists, together, wrists pressed together in a handcuffed position. Haha, you're all here to arrest me, right? It wasn't a joke. You've got to be kidding me, he half-shouted. The commotion woke up Fogel's wife and house guest, who both made their way downstairs. Fogel turned around and shouted, Hey everybody, come down and see the brave men of the Charlottesville Police Department coming to arrest a 72-year-old man. The officers wouldn't allow Fogel to get his keys or get dressed. Minutes later, as he sat in the back backseat of a police car, Fogel realized that throughout his 48-year career as a civil rights attorney, he never understood how much it hurt to be handcuffed. He also realized the arrest would have reverberations. It was early June, and in less than two weeks, Voters in Charlottesville would go to the polls to decide on the city's next district attorney, with one of the candidates vowing to rein in police abuse and roll back mass incarceration. That candidate was now bound for the police station. Whew. Two months later, Charlottesville became ground zero for the largest demonstration by white supremacists in a decade. The world was shocked by images of young men marching with tiki torches, chanting, Jews will, Jews will not replace us, and President 45, can't say his name, contemptible response to their hateful message. But something else also shocked observers of the August demonstrations. Well, for some, I should say. The police appeared uninterested in stopping violence between white supremacists, many of whom came armed, and rival demonstrators. As the day wound down, Heather Heyer, an anti-racist demonstrator, was mowed down by a car allegedly driven by white supremacist uh, James Alex Fields Jr. Charlottesville police, who declined to comment on for the story, have denied that the police were given an order to stand down. But according to testimonials and videos from the day, officers passively stood by while people were pepper sprayed, beaten, and thrown to the ground. In a video obtained by the New York Times, police did nothing even after a white supremacist fired a gun in the direction of a black man. 
The spectacle of Charlottesville police sparked a national discussion on whether some police officers are sympathetic to a far-right, white nationalist perspective. Two days after the demonstrations, the president of a local police union in New Mexico was caught sharing an internet meme joking about running over protesters. In September, the head of the Pennsylvania Police Union called Black Lives Matter protesters quote-unquote a pack of rabid animals, but he previously defended an officer who sported a Nazi tattoo. Nothing illustrates the point better than the case of DeAndre Harris, a 20-year-old Charlottesville local who turned up to protest hate groups in his city. After the events in Charlottesville, a video emerged of Harris falling to the ground and getting savagely beaten by six white nationalists wielding baseball bats and two-by-fours. All of this happened in a parking garage next to the police station, but no arrests were made at the time. Charlottesville police would later arrest three of the men in connection to the beating, but only after an internet campaign led by the Intercept's Sean King identified them and pressured the police to apprehend them. And now, police are about to arrest a fourth. On Tuesday, an unidentified local magistrate in Charlottesville issued an arrest warrant for Harris as well, making him a wanted man in connection to his well-documented beating. According to the Washington Post, the magistrate issued the warrant after a self-identified Southern nationalist accused Harris of injuring him during his own assault. It may seem shocking, that local officials would take a word of a white nationalist at face value despite a mountain of video evidence suggesting otherwise. But it shouldn't, because it's happened before. Two months earlier, Charlottesville police arrested their most prominent critic on the word of a white nationalist, and his case is still pending. When Jeff Vogel came to Charlottesville 10 years ago, he was already a celebrated civil rights lawyer. After graduating from Rutgers Law School in 1969, he became a highly sought-after defense attorney and eventually became the executive and legal director for the American Civil Liberties Union of New Jersey. He went on to become the legal director for the Manhattan-based Center for Constitutional Rights, where he worked on a landmark case against the city's stop-and-frisk policy. Fogel is an old-school progressive, and when I caught up with him in September in a Charlottesville coffee shop, everything about, everything about him reminded me of Bernie Sanders. Bald except for a patch of white hair on the back of his head, Vogel wears a pair of square glasses and even speaks with a hint of old-school Brooklyn accent, like Sanders when he announces the influence of millionaires and billionaires. He told me that he was driven to become a defense attorney early in life after a visit to a New Jersey state prison. When I went into, the, into a prison the first time, in Trenton State Prison in 1970, it was outrageous what I saw, he said. The conditions were horrible. Almost everybody was black. It was just so out front. And for all his passion, there is a side of Fogel that is defiant and sarcastic. The license plate on his Mazda reads CVLRGTS. So cops know who they're dealing with before they pull him over. Unhappy with life in the city, Fogel moved to Charlottesville and set up a private practice in 2007. He took cases that involved false arrests and excessive force among other abuses, and quickly established himself as one of the city's leading defense attorneys. To give a cheeky example, in 2012, Fogel handled the case of a black man who was arrested for saying fuck you to patrol officer. The judge threw out the case because cursing at a cop is protected speech. That is good to know. Fogel helped him sue the department for damages, and the city settled. 
Vogel has also been outspoken, has been an outspoken critic of the city's stop and frisk system. Throughout the years, he told me, the department's data has shown that around 70 to 80% of the people stopped were black, even though the population of Charlottesville is only 20% black. So I went to the city council, he told me, and I said, listen, I think the program is terrific. The only thing we have to do is shift it from focusing on black people to focusing on white people. We'll catch a lot of people. In 2015, Fogel filed a Freedom of Information Act lawsuit on behalf of the NAACP and the Charlottesville Public Housing Association of Residents, or PHAR, seeking documentation for the reasons of the stops. The city fought to exempt their release as criminal investigative material, and Fogel lost. Like so many progressives, Fogel was deeply disturbed by 45's election. Two nights after Election Day, he woke up at 3 a.m. and decided right then he wanted to be more than just a critic. Vogel decided to run a Commonwealth. Fogel decided to run for Commonwealth Attorney. The sitting top prosecutor, Dave Chapman, had announced he was not seeking re-election, and Fogel saw it as his opportunity to defy the 45 administration, much like civil rights activist Larry Krasner did in Philadelphia. As federal law enforcement would become more draconian, Fogel could make Charlottesville an example of a progressive alternative. I just thought that I've got to try it and do something locally without interference from the feds, Fogel told me, to show everyone we really can do something affecting the racial inequities as well as mass incarceration. In the past couple years, groups like the ACLU have tried to draw attention to, the little, to a little-known fact. Local prosecutors are the most powerful people in the criminal justice system. They decide when and how to bring criminal cases, and when 9 out of 10 cases are resolved by plea bargains, judges often have limited involvement overseeing their cases. As a candidate for local prosecutor, Fogel did what only a few people have done before. He ran on a platform of reforming the police and dramatically rolling back mass incarceration. His campaign platform promised to avoid mandatory minimums, reduce the number of felony prosecutions, and carefully scrutinize stop-and-frisk policies. But one of Fogel's proposals in particular attracted more attention than the others. His promise not to prosecute anyone for possessing marijuana. The proposal particularly ruffled the feathers of Joe Thomas, a local conservative radio host, who interviewed Fogel about it. He later released a 26-minute segment titled Roll Me a Fogel, in which he mixed the interview with sound bites, of, sound bites from Afro Man's song Because I Got High. It was, in many ways, a Charlottesville replica of the radical campaign run by Krasner in Philadelphia. <coughs> Krasner ran on a decarceration platform and won his primary race in May, sending shockwaves throughout the law enforcement world just two weeks before Fogel's arrest in June. Fogel faced steep odds throughout his race. His opponent in the Democratic primary was Joe Plantania, the heir apparent and former deputy district attorney. Plantania knew his boss would be retiring ahead of time, and with his months-long head start, locked down the major Democratic donors and endorsements. Fogel, meanwhile, was winning over progressive grassroots groups, like showing up for racial justice and Together Seville, and getting endorsed by Joy Johnson, a leader with P-H-A-R. He had a shot. On the evening of June 2nd, just eight days before the primary, Fogel got a call from a friend in the local chapter of Surge, Jason Kessler. Oh, Surge, period. <laughs> Not Jason Kessler. Jason Kessler, comma, the prominent white supremacist who would go on to organize the August rallies, was eating at a, downtown, at a restaurant downtown. 
Surge was headed to protest. Part of their initiative was to try to stop local restaurants from serving him, and Fogel decided to check it out. When he got there, Kessler was eating at a table in an open pavilion, and Fogel decided to watch the action from afar. He got an outdoor table at Miller's, a restaurant adjacent to the pavilion. He ordered a burger, fries, and a beer, and posted to watch the protest. After a confrontation with the protesters, in a twist of bad luck, Kessler exited the pavilion towards Miller's. While speaking at his camera phone, he recognized Fogel as he walked by his table. Here we have this candidate, Joe, which is not um, incorrect, uh, Fogel, he said, and proceeded to get into a heated argument with him. At one point, Fogel told Kessler to get a job to do something productive during the day. According to Kessler's own video footage, he responded by shouting, You are a communist. Then, Caleb Norris, one of Kessler's associates, looked at Fogel and called him a communist piece of shit, at which point Fogel took a step towards Norris and lightly put his hand on Norris's chest while Norris swatted it away. Oh my god, this guy just assaulted. Press charges, press charges, shouted Kessler, this communist. He turned to Norris and said, hey dude, press charges against him now. He's running for Commonwealth attorney. Kessler did not reply to multiple requests for comment from The Intercept. Kessler later posted his video of the argument to YouTube, so you can judge for yourself. And they have the video here. I'm not going to play it, because I'll probably get too mad when I watch it. <sighs> when I met with Fogel, he didn't come across as a man capable of a violent assault, at least not as a successful one against a much younger group of men. The 72-year-old is active in the city, but he, told, but he told to me that he had to take a medical leave several years ago due to a heart attack. That night, Fogel followed Kessler and his entourage to the police station, where Kessler showed them his video and told them his version of the events. Fogel later told me that police had said they have a video, but declined to show it to him. Frustrated he wasn't allowed to see and explain Kessler's video, and figuring it would amount to nothing, Fogel decided not to cooperate. He asked an officer if he was free to leave, and the officer did not give him a straight answer. Vogel got angry, and after arguing with the officer about whether he was under arrest, he was told he was allowed to leave. Kessler later posted another video of that argument titled, Lawyer Jeff Fogel Abusing a Police Officer. Fogel went home and went to bed. He would be roused later that night, arrested and charged with misdemeanor assault. The police had chosen to believe the story of a known white nationalist and serial uh, a Exaggerator told that a 72-year-old man had violently assaulted a young neo-Nazi. When prominent public figures are wanted by the police, there are typically two ways officers can handle it. Either call the person and ask them to come down to the station, or call the media and arrange for a perp walk. The Charlottesville police went on a third, went with a third option, the one most likely to guarantee politically devastating mugshot. The police sought what's called a non-permitted warrant, granted by local magistrate Justin Garwood, which can't be effectuated by summons. The warrant gave them some flexibility about when they could execute it, so they could have delayed physically arresting Fogel until the next, so they could have delayed physically arresting Fogel until the next morning. But they chose to do it after midnight that night, dragging him to the police station in his pajamas. Fogel later told me that he was taken before the magistrate and spoke to Garwood one-on-one. According to Fogel, he asked Garwood why he allowed such a warrant rather than just having the police call him down to the station. Because I didn't like the way you spoke to the sergeant in the police department, Garwood told him. Garwood threatened to have him detained, but then released him on a $5,000 personal security bond. When he got back to his house at 2.30 a.m., his wife was still looking for him at the county jail. 
Because Fogel didn't have his keys, he sat outside his house and waited for her. Garwood did not respond to a request for comment from the Intercept, and the story will be updated if he does. Fogel filed a formal complaint with Avenel A. Coates, the chief magistrate for the judicial district that includes Charlottesville. Three days later, Coates sent him a letter saying the arrest was appropriate because there was probable cause that there was an unwanted touching of the victim and that it is reasonable that there, were, that there was a safety concern. But for Fogel, the damage was already done. The day after the arrest, his ruffled mugshot was plastered all over the local paper. Discussion of the arrest overshadowed any news coverage of the debates or his campaign. On election day, a record number of people turned out, and nearly 40% of them cast their ballots for the man in his PJs. It wasn't enough, but Fogel says he considers that a success, that his ideas were catching on. It still seems significant that with that radical a program, I could get 40% of the vote, he said. Meanwhile, the criminal case against Fogel stalled. After the local prosecutor recused himself, and the state initially had trouble finding a special prosecutor who hadn't dealt with Fogel as a defense attorney in their line of work, but the case is scheduled to go forward later this month. The Charlottesville Police Department is also investigating Fogel's arrest internally. According to emails Fogel shared with me, the officer in charge of the investigation communicated to Fogel that it was finished, but the department maintains it is ongoing. I filed public records requests seeking the investigation's conclusions, as well as the police body camera footage of Fogel's arrests, but both were withheld as investigative files. And whether or not the results of this investigation are ever made public, Fogel is clear about why he thinks they chose to arrest him. I have been a persistent critic of the police department, and that's why I got arrested. So you all might want to think about that. Fogel came close, but it wasn't enough, and elections have consequences. The prosecution of DeAndre Harris will be handled for now by Commonwealth Attorney Dave Chapman, who will pass it off after the general election to his deputy, Joe Plantagna. Whew. So, you can find this article on The Intercept. And we're going to take a bit of a break, and then we'll be back here. We have a very special guest here, uh, Global Val, who's going to share some information with us. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll be back in a little bit. And this loneliness won't leave me alone 
Welcome back to the weekly review. Ah, we're joined here by Global Val. Val, thank you so much for being here. Hey, it's really good to be here. Yeah, welcome back. Thank you. I know I've been away for a couple of weeks, um, but uh, right before I went away, we had Peace in the Park. Oh yeah, which was a really cool festival that we had in Golden Gate Park. I got to MC at the main stage of the Bandshell, the beautiful historic music concourse. Um, we had a beautiful day. Uh, there was, you know, meditation and yoga and workshops and open mics, and then we. We had a lot of amazing speakers and and musicians and things uh, to try to spread and uh, generate peace within ourselves and within our communities to send that around the world because Lord knows we need that. Yes, we do. I mean, a lot of it's like stopping what's in place and then also creating the world that we want to live in. Absolutely. Yeah. All, all of the above. Right. And, you know, it kind of has to uh, th- there was definitely that kind of internal inner peace part of it. Because, you know, kind of you say peace starts at home, but like, yeah. you know, it has to start with an individual too. Um, but it was also a lot of fun. So, you know, you got to dance too, because there will be joy in the revolution. Yeah, <laughs> I, that will be good. I look forward to that. Absolutely. Um, it's funny. I remember thinking that, uh, or hearing people after the women's march and the march against the inaugurations and things like that. And, you know, people who didn't really understand what was happening and, uh, there was someone who said, like, I just didn't get it. Like, I saw all these people walking and marching together, and they looked really happy, you know, like they were having fun. Yeah. <laughs> I said, well, you know, that's part of it. It's people coming together. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's kind of the world that we're working towards, like the world that we want to live in, which is a world of love. Yeah. Without the fear aspect that we're so driven by uh, these days. Yes. Yep. <laughs> So um, Peace in the Park was really great, and I was really uh, honored to be a part of it. It was a truly San Francisco <laughs> event. Um, and my friend, Sunshine Powers, who's the owner of Love on Hate, oh, yes. um, she designed this amazing uh, dress that I got to wear for the event. And um, some folks that she's affiliated with, it was a hand tie-dyed dress um that i also wore for earth day i couldn't get rid of it it was like fucking dress of the season and i don't i'm not even like a real dress person but um she she makes dresses that fit me but the reason i bring up sunny powers is because uh love on hate which is the big tie-dye shop on 
Hate Masonic, right on the corner, the big, beautiful, colorful building there, um, has turned into a donation center. They really, they've had the doors open this week, but not as a business. They've been using it as a donation center. They've been sorting through all sorts of donations, get arranging rides up north um, uh, to bring supplies to people who have been, you know, evacuated from their homes, lost their homes, and um, uh, the the great organization that she works with is taking it to the streets. Okay, which the acronym is TITS, by the way, T I T T S. Anyhow, it's it's supported by the city. The city really loves that program. Um, uh, Supervisor Breed, uh, you know, endorses the program, and it's in her district, District Five. But so um, a lot of the people who are there at Love on Hate this week are the kids from taking it to the streets. Okay, so it's it's homeless youth. It's a homeless youth program where um, as long as these young people uh, agree basically to work and and help the community, whether it be cleaning up the streets or, or, um, you know, erasing graffiti or something, or even things like this, like special projects where people are in need, these kids from taking it to the streets come together. So I want to give a huge shout out to all the folks over there at Love on Heat. They were on the cover of the San Francisco Examiner today. There's like a two page article about everybody in San Francisco coming together and making sure that, um, you know, we're doing as much good as we can to try to help our neighbors. Yeah. Yeah. That's and, great. and family members and people who, you know, I mean, Northern California, it's nobody, you know, everybody's interconnected up here. Yes. Yeah. And, um, it's, it, you know, a lot, I think a lot of times people might say, Oh, San Francisco, or you're in California, you're totally in this different world. It's like a la la fantasy land, you know, uh, compared to a lot of other places. But I think what people have to realize is that, we are so connected here in the Bay Area, and um, you know, we 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 try to have you know beautiful lives because we want everyone else to do have the same. Yeah, yeah, that's a really great way of putting it. And it's also I was thinking about earlier of how, and a lot of folks have also mentioned that if we could be like this all the time, where you know even when people aren't going through emergencies, it, can we make sure that everyone always has access to housing and shelter and food and healthcare and their pets are taken care of? Can we do that always? Like yeah. why does it only happen, not only, but how come folks seem to like show up when there's, when there's an emergency like this? That's a really good point. And I think that like just bringing that up is a great challenge to everybody uh, because in the, this day and age, as to be trite, um, we see that uh, there really isn't as much mm, structural support as people need. Yes, we'll say um, whether or not that there are programs or you know government social programs or things, some of which fill the gaps, or some of which may have good intentions, or some of which don't have very good intentions and just have large budgets. Mm. Um, whatever it may be, you know. The we have to be able to help one another because yeah. we can't depend on you know government programs and uh, <laughs> bureaucracy to to um, you know do do its job in time. Um, it's good that we have those in place, but it's not enough. I, yeah, I agree. So maybe this is part of the uh, the the big turning of things. Yeah. Um, I, I I mean I've seen it by being here at mutiny radio the past several years and i want to you know throw it back to occupy 
2011-2012 where it was Occupy San Francisco was really in full swing and across the country Mm -hmm. and around the world yeah and it really showed people coming together and working on a model based on consensus, Yeah, which is so hard. It really do. is. Even having two people agree on things is hard. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, you know, but to have like, you know, huge groups of just the public coming together yeah. and, and making de- group decisions. Yeah. It was really, really impressive. Um, you know, the Sioux, uh, or the Lakota people, um, the Sioux, uh, kind of claim to have that original, um, mm-hmm. sense of, of, of democracy, but, but, uh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, of, um, the, the uh, problem solving by consensus. Yeah. And so, you know, it takes a long time. Yes. Yes. But it's kind of a true model of democracy yeah. because, you know, you, you actually have to all eventually come together and see what is best overall. Right. And that's, that's, I mean, that's high order stuff. Yeah. Like you said, it's sometimes hard to agree with one other person. Um, but I, I, I've seen in our, in our country, in our society, and not in the mainstream news, but in the real streets. Yeah. Um, and here at Mutiny Radio, the, the, the people who've been through here, and it is this uh, shift towards really, really working together, um, doing things and getting organized outside of the system that, you know, fails in, in, in many different ways, not to say it's a total failure in, in all ways, but, um, you know, people coming together and, and building uh, gardens. We've got Amy Farrah Weiss who ran yeah. for mayor yeah. a couple of years back for the, on the one, two, three replace Ed Lee ticket. Yeah, that's right. She was kind of the pioneer on that. And she's been working with the St. Francis homelessness challenge Yes, and literally being out there on the streets in the homeless encampment, standing there and making sure that when the DPW comes through mm-hmm. to do a sweep, that they can't do the sweeps that they just would do if nobody else were watching. Yeah. So they've been building all these and, and getting raising money and, and supplies to do all these kind of mini um, mini shelters yeah. for transitional housing. And, um, you know, I mean, there's just so much happening on the ground where people are helping one another. Yeah. Whether it be disaster relief down in Houston or in Northern California here. Um, you know, it's a really hard time, but it's a big time of change and change is always hard. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that, I think we're going to see that, you know, it's, it's kind of like, well, if we're t- talking about fires, right? It's like, it's like if you burnt, it's like a burnt field, right? Or a burnt forest, you have a fire and then everything looks and smells terrible and it looks depressing and devastating. And then in the springtime, life shows up again and, and there's growth. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's a, you know, big time of change. Um, and it's certainly not affecting, you know, it's certainly affecting a lot of people in very heavy, heavy, um, sad ways. Yeah. But, you know, we can't change what has happened, but we can move forward and try to create something better. Right. Right. So I like that. Absolutely. Um, if we have a couple minutes, um, yeah. you were talking about, um, well, police, and we were talking about the ICE, right? The immigration. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, uh, uh, on the news, it said that the uh, how so very generous of them um, that ICE is not 
doing any kind yeah. of raids or or having any kind of presence up there in in Northern California in, yeah. the, in the fire zones and the in the um, the shelters or the the community centers that have that have popped up. Mm-hmm. Um, that is, you know, they've they've actually issued a statement saying we're not we're not going around there. We're not trying to because when we look at and we think of wine country, right? Mm-hmm. But what's wine country? But a bunch of agriculture. Mm-hmm. We've got a lot of farm workers up in Northern California. Yeah. You know, and they are, uh, you know, it's a big population of people who sometimes really don't have, are, are on undocumented, came yeah. here, crossed borders for whatever reason. Imaginary borders. Imagine- the, bo- the borders cross them, we should say. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Diamond Dave always says borders are just a line on their map. Yeah, that's um, true. But right. So, so there's a lot of people who are, you know, devastated, you know, whether, whatever you're you know, document status may yeah. be, I mean, shit, I don't know where my birth certificate is, you know, <laughs> not, you know, but anyhow, that's side, side note. But, um, yeah, so ICE has said, well, we're not going to go around and try to like round people up unless there's some sort of, you know, gro- gross uh, criminal situation, you know, somebody, which, which we know that for the most part, people going on shooting rampages are not are undocumented. who are, yeah. <laughs> yeah, white men, white American yeah. men. Um, but I did want to give some information. Um, there's actually um, a a posting really close by here at the Mission Local Market on mm. on Harrison, and they've had this sign in their window for a while, and it is from the UnitedWeDream.org um, or the United We Dream group, and it and it talks about what to do if ice comes to your door. Oh yeah, yeah. So there's um, just five points here. Uh, first point is, um, if ICE comes to your door, do not open doors. ICE cannot come in without a signed warrant by a criminal court judge. They can only come in if you let them. Mm. Two, remain silent. ICE can use anything you say against you in your immigration case, so claim your right to remain silent. You should say, I plead the Fifth Amendment and choose to remain silent. Three, do not sign anything ICE gives you without talking to an attorney. Four, report and record. Take pictures and video unless you're on federal government property. Take notes of badge numbers, number number of agents, time, type of car, and exactly what happened. You can report immediately to the United We Dream hotline. That's 1-844-363-1423. Again, the United We Dream hotline is 1-844-363-1423 to let them know what happened. And the fifth point here is fight back. Mm. Now, we're not talking about with your fists, but get a trustworthy attorney and explore all options to fight your case. If detained, you may be able to get bail, so don't give up hope. Join your local team to defend yourself from enforcement. So the, um, if you go to unitedwedream.org slash end, they have it in English, they have it in Spanish, um, just so that we're looking out, you yeah. know, for our neighbors. Cause it's, 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 you know, it's, it's one thing to be in violation of a law and have to deal with the consequences of that, but it's something entirely different when people come to your house in the middle of the day or the middle of the night, bang on your door, take you, take your children, take your mother. Who's like, you know, like there was a woman in the mission who was like 80 years old and, and got deported last year because she was there, you know, and it's all these 
it's just a, a really atrocious and, and, and disgusting way to go about it. Yeah. Um, and this, this is what's happening in our time. So, you know, what we can do is do what we can for each other and, yeah. you know, stay oh, alert wow. and, uh, and help when we can. Yeah, definitely. And I also just, you know, wonder who, like, not that I know anyone who works for ice, but clearly someone does or someone listening knows someone who knows someone who works for them. So I think it's also just how do we get people to stop working for these institutions that harm people? Like how do we, cause they can't, can't function if they don't have anyone doing it. If there's no one to follow those orders, then those orders become, yeah. you know, they disappear. Yeah. Kind of null, null, null. nullified. That's a good right? word for it. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a really good point. And I love, I love the, the like really cutting edge you know, conversations that we can have here at Mutiny Radio, because I think a lot of people wouldn't even like get that far to say like, you know, no, just stop, turn around, sit yeah. down, you know, yeah. don't apply for that job. Right, right. It starts with us. <laughs> it does. You know, it's kind of a weird twist. Also, speaking of the police and sanctuary cities and things, you know, the attorney general, this this past week made another threat to sanctuary cities. So we're talking about Jeff Sessions. He, he, he directly threatened um, four cities, Chicago, New York, and another one. There were four cities, uh, New Orleans, oh. and one other that I can't think of at the top of my head, but um, basically giving them a deadline at the end of October uh, to com- you know, basically show that they're in compliance with all the ice, ice stuff. Now, now, the good news, though, the, the, is that They've tried this with other some other cities, yeah. and the other cities have already been cleared. Yeah. So I mean, it, it's it's a threat, but what they're threatening is to withhold federal money for law enforcement. Okay. So it's kind of, right. <laughs> yeah. Kind of going back to what you're saying, like don't apply for a nice job. Yeah. Well, who's going to be a cop if you don't have if the police departments aren't hiring? Right. Right. So it's it's so twisted right now. Everything's so twisted, but. Um, yeah, <laughs> I don't know how it's all going to shake down, but um, you know, sanctuary cities. We're we're happy that California, San Francisco is, and yeah. I, I believe Jerry Brown also just signed that the state of California is kind yeah. of like a sanctuary state yeah. of sorts. I don't have all the details about that, but um, and of course, things take a while to actually go into mm-hmm. go into action. But um, you know, it's just about it's it's more about human rights than anything. It's not saying that you know okay so people violated this law by not doing this but you know like i said what we're what, what we're speaking out against ultimately or at least you know like immediate in an immediate way is the way that ice and and immigration enforcement goes about it you know just taking people out of their homes, separating families, yeah. you know, putting them into detention centers, yeah. which are privately run and, and profitable. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's something I didn't quite get to a story today, but about how so many people fighting fires are folks who are incarcerated and it's yes. like using slave labor to get folks to fight these fires. Right. They're getting paid like a dollar an hour or a dollar a day. Even. And, and yeah. And, and whereas, uh, like a, if a starting fire firefighter makes about $40,000 a year, you know? And yeah. And so you have all these incarcerated people, men and women yeah. on the front li- on the front lines of fire. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, you would think in a, in a just society, um, that 
if someone had violated the law and if we still in have a just society, maybe I'm sorry, cut you off. Yeah. But maybe in a just society, there would be no laws because things would be just. <laughs> well, that was true. True. Sorry. Go ahead. No, maybe in a, in a just, um, if we had a, a real, well, a functioning criminal justice system, I guess you could say. I mean, shit, if somebody is going to be, you know, violent and terrible and go to jail for that, well, that's that's a thing. But at the same time, if if being in jail is supposed to like not only keep society safe, but also rehabilitate the person and let them get ready to reenter society so that they won't violate it again. Why not pay these people a salary? Maybe they don't get it while they're incarcerated, but when they get out of jail, they have savings. You know, and whatever they do with it is whatever they do with it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, working for a dollar a day is is, is an insult and it's yeah. such dangerous work, too. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Take a breath, Roman. It's oh, okay. Yeah. We're going to be all right. It's going to be all right. We're going to be okay. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for the reminder. Yeah. It's just, yeah, it's so atrocious. Yeah. So, but it's, it is interesting also to talk about the kind of world that we do want, you know, like, why not mm-hmm. talk about that? Like, what, you know, what do our ideal worlds look like? Yeah, exactly. Where people don't sign up to be ICE agents. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there are no borders, so there are no yeah. agents. I mean, it's one thing. I mean, it's, it's immigration custom enforcement, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, sure. If, we're, if we have borders, which we do, um, but, you know... It, if, if you're checking people's trunks and making sure they're not bringing in tr- truckloads of AK-47s, well, maybe your job is useful. But unfortunately, most of the, the efforts right now yeah. are about hunting down poor people who came here for whatever reason, yeah. don't have their papers, or, or are in process, or have lapsed in their process by like a month or something like, you know, some minor violation of, of lapse. Um, I mean, bureaucracy, God, you just everything takes forever. So, um, yeah, doing, trying to do the right thing. Yeah. And I also would suggest that the most dangerous people are already here and they're already in positions of power. Like they already have their paperwork. They're in, they're in the white house right now. Like they're, yes. they're like these, these white men who are around shooting, shooting up the place. Right. Like they're, they're here. They're the ones who are the white supremacists, for instance, who are harassing civil rights attorneys and getting them arrested. Exactly. They're here. They're in law enforcement. They're, they're here. Those are the ones that (laughs) a lot of us are either afraid of, or like they're the ones who are causing the harm. Yeah. It's a lot. Yes. A deep, a deep concern for the, for the, um, the ignorance and the violence that uh, exists in this country. Yeah. It's, you know, uh, Yeah. You guys can't see this because it's radio, but we're shaking our heads. <laughs> I oftentimes think about what it would be like if it were like the Howard Stern show, if only because he had a video camera. I don't know any other way it would be similar to that show. <laughs> yeah, yeah, probably not in too many other ways. Yeah. But actually, I think I got we got an email from our from the station director saying that there is um, we're going to be able to set something up and, and we're going to set up like a, a live stream YouTube Ooh. channel for Mutiny Radio. So stay tuned for that. Somebody's working on it. Cool. You know, things around here take some time. Yeah. But apparently that's going to happen. Uh, Dave, Dime Dave's always wanted that for the Common Thread Collective. Yeah. Oh, that'd be great. You know, and, and we've had a lot of people come in and, and shoot 
you know, videos of, of, uh, you know, parts of the show, but, um, it certainly would be interesting because you could live stream and then it becomes just, then it's just there, you know? And reaches a different audience too. Yeah. I may have to turn off the comments just from like what I've seen on YouTube comments (laughs) where it's like, you know, folks who find out about the show and maybe don't agree with the message or might have some certain words for me. Um, however, on the flip side, there are folks who might be supportive yeah, fair, fair Gotta enough. Got to think positively. That's right. And speaking of um, faces for radio, in the um, Examiner today, like I said, we were talking about Love on Hate being the big donation center there. Yeah. Um, but um, so there's a story about about them and Sunny Powers. But the cover of the front page of the Examiner today is Mutiny Radio's very own Shaggy of Shaggy's soul shakedown which is a thursday show i think it's six to eight every thursday uh-huh. and it's a picture of the on the cover of the examiner of of the dj um shaggy dermody and he's from napa originally apparently and so he's been helping people out he knows uh folks and family friends who have lost their homes lost their lives um but he is on the cover of the san francisco examiner today wow. so mutiny radio dj shaggy soul shakedown tune in and listen to his show he's a really nice guy yeah uh he was on he was at peace in the park the other day too or a couple weeks back um but helping out and you know this is community like loving people artists activists um radio djs we care Aw, <laughs> thanks so much for being here, Val, and for sharing this. Yeah, well, thanks for having me on. Yeah, of course. I was a little nervous because I am about to go on air for the next four hours, and I didn't think I had anything else to say. Uh, well, didn't mean to... <laughs> you got me warmed up. I'm, okay. I'm, war- I'm getting warmed up, though. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'll be um, 2 o'clock, Women's Magazine with Global Val here, and then um, 3 to 6, uh, the Common Thread Collective. Diamond Dave is feeling better. Good, good. And um, I don't know if he'll be able to come into the station today, but I'm pretty sure we're going to have him give, give us a call in. So um, if anyone out there is listening, we're back. The community open mic starts at 3 o'clock, and we're here for you if you want to come and uh, be a part of it. Oh, excellent. Oh, yay. Cool. Well... It's about 1.52 now, so we'll probably wrap up this show so we can have the next show come on in. Uh, thanks, everyone, for listening in. And um, I'm going to put up some music before 2 p.m. Also, if you'd like to support the station, go to mutinyradio.fm. If you're interested in having a show here, there are plenty of slots available. And we have Saturday nights from 8 to 10 p.m. that are available for rentals. It's totally uncensored here, so you can do and say whatever you want. And with it, you know, you can say whatever you want. Okay. Dot, yeah, dot, dot. Yeah. Yeah. I think we kind of draw the line. At, at yeah. Hate, hate. No speech. hate speech. Yeah. 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 Nothing, nothing uh, homophobic. Yeah. Nothing racist. Yeah. Like, even though we were just talking about angry white men, but that doesn't mean we think well, that all m- white men are angry. Reverse racism doesn't exist. So <laughs> I think we're covered with that one. <laughs> We're just looking at facts. Yeah, we're just looking at facts here, people. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Cool. Okay. Well, and also, if you want to support the Weekly Review, we would love to have some sponsors here. If you go to patreon.com slash weeklyrev, even if you're able to donate a dollar a month, that would help out immensely. We are 72% of our way to our goal of raising 100 bucks a month for rental costs. So any help would be greatly appreciated. If you want to follow more news stories, check us out at facebook.com slash weekly rev. 
And thanks again to Global Val for being here. And I'm going to play some more music. And then coming up next is Women's Magazine with Global Val, followed by the Crown and Thread Collective. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And hope everyone has a great and safe week.
tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of Mutiny Radio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. MutinyRadio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced McRat. <laughs> 